Hello, welcome to another episode of I Love Rock and Roll. Uh, I'm Ken Krantz. Chip's not here this week, but we got Kahuna behind the boards. Always a pleasure to be here. And I'm very excited about today's guest and today's topic. So today's guest is um, actually somebody I've been trying to get since we started I Love Rock and Roll. This was probably the very first guest I tried booking, but she's very busy with her own podcasts. And um, the timing hasn't worked out, so I've actually been saving today's topic for her also because um, I know she's as big a fan as both these guys as I am. Um, So our host has a really great podcast out called No Dogs in Space. She does um, uh, multi-part podcasts on different bands. And I know that you just wrapped up one on the Velvet Underground. Uh, Welcome Carolina Hildago to the show. Hey, thank you so much, Ken. I've been wanting to be on this show forever. You know, we've we've been talking sporadically, but then we're just always keeping in check like, hey, how's everything going with you? How's your mother? I don't know. We're we're trying to figure this out. So it's finally happening. And this is the the first of, I I hope, many times that we come together. Oh, yeah. Yeah, For sure. No, we'll we'll definitely have you back. I'm a big fan of of your tweets, of your stand up. I, I, I love Ken stuff. I, I tell people, I tell my husband, I'll show it to him. I'll be like, this is really funny. Oh, and then he, he'll laugh yeah, and he'll go back to cooking like a steak or something. <laughs> and it's just always like, Ken this and Ken that all the time. All right. That's it so happens nice. like twice a year, but it happens a lot. <laughs> that is probably two more times a year than most people bring me up. So <laughs> I am very excited to hear that. Are you, are you, do you still do stand up? I, I do, but not nearly enough, like not nearly enough and not nearly as much as I used to, Mm -hmm. you know, the whole pandemic kind of just shut us in. And then I focused on podcasting and then, and then that kind of worked better than stand up for a while. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to ride this wave and we'll see what, I mean, it just makes me happier too. Yeah. Like just to kind of like do things on your own terms at your own time. Yeah. Kind of nice. Yeah. I was going to, that, that must be uh, that must be a good feeling. (laughs) <laughs> I know. Instead of waiting while reading the paper till in the morning to, to see if you can do like 10 minutes in front of like 17, like graduate students or something. Yeah, that's um, I mean, that's not bad. It's not bad. It's a good it was a good 10 years of my life. But, uh, but you know, th- this is more fun. This is like me and Ken. We're just talking. Yeah, it you're, is. You're a computer. It, it, you know what? It is a lot of fun. I've, I've found that um, I still love stand up, but I'm not as. It, it does. It's not everything for me anymore. Like I, I, I look forward to doing this more than I look forward to the majority of my shows. Hey, you, you're growing. You're evolving. Look at that. Just 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 like the, the, the topic, <laughs> the two main people that we're going to talk about the same thing. It's just about evolving into another thing. And who knows if you're going to get into the occult or, or into a mountain of cocaine. If you haven't already, <laughs> maybe you should start. There's, there's a lot of phases that Ken Krantz has to go through. Right. Yes. To get through his creative period. <laughs> and I'm here to watch that <laughs> and comment, on, of course, <laughs> as it goes by. <laughs> so, um, well, that was a good lead in with the occult and mountains of coke, because um, so we're covering uh, David Bowie and Iggy Pop and um, their time that they spent in Berlin, which yep. was uh, it's it's uh pretty famous period for the two of them 
Uh, but it was it was not a lot of time. It was um, maybe two and a half years, 1977 until uh, 1979. Yeah, I think it started. They started in 1976. And then they slowly started, you know, they they they, they put this like uh, that their like symbiotic relationship together, and they started getting like it's pretty much how Stella got her groove back. Like they were doing <laughs> that. They were like, I got to go to Jamaica. I need to like get away from my my friends and my dealers, especially. And and, and then and it pretty much they're like their best year in college was something that was so important to them, and somehow because of the, the work that they did. It's all important to all of us for generations to come, which is amazing. That's crazy. It's it's amazing when we get into it, because so, you know, everybody knows uh, Bowie fans. So this is also the first proper David Bowie episode that that we've done. And like I said, I've been this is uh, one of the first episodes I ever wanted to do. But I've I've literally been waiting to to get you on to do it. Um, When you look at. I didn't like people know about the Berlin trilogy. Bowie's got those three famous albums uh, where he stopped doing characters and just concentrated on being David Bowie. So the albums are uh, Low, Heroes, and Lodger, and that's referred to as his Berlin trilogy. What people, what a lot of people don't know is that Iggy Pop was there with him through most of it. And uh, Bowie was also really instrumental in getting Iggy's first two solo records off the ground, uh, The Idiot and Lust for Life. Um, What blows my mind is in 1977, four of those five albums came out. Four, Four landmark uh, four landmark albums. And so in, in chronological order, it was The Idiot, uh, Iggy, and then Bowie put out Low, and then uh, Iggy put out Lust for Life, and then Bowie put out Heroes in in one year. It's, uh, well, I mean, remember, cocaine is a hell of a drug. <laughs> remember that. Like, they are in, like, although they're trying to keep, like, relatively sober throughout all of this, but relatively is, like, their version is just, like, a small mound of Coke or maybe a couple of days a week. They're, right. they're going to party. But then they spend a lot of time resting and then also a lot of time working really hard on a sem- semi sober level. So their soberness to me is like my rock bottom yeah. if I were <laughs> ever to do that. But remember, th- th- they're a whole other level at right. this point. Right. Yeah. This is this is them attempting to escape L.A. And, and the darkness of L.A. And yes. Imagine how bad it is that you have to escape L.A. And then go to West Berlin in yes. the middle of a Cold War and being like, this is better. There is no hot water in this entire country, but this is better than being in Hollywood. They yeah, they they sought out. They went to one of the poorest neighborhoods in West Berlin and decided that they were going to get clean. And and we, sh- we should set the scene for what kicked this off. So um, Bowie is coming off of. Uh, since Ziggy Stardust, which is, I, I want to say, 72. Um, he's coming off of a run of uh, like five or six albums in about four years, which is just an insane, it's just an insane rate of production. And, and by the way, they're all, 
great albums. Like he's just, it's, it's like this music is just, it's like, he's almost vomiting up great albums. He, he can't, <laughs> he can't stop. So it went, um, he did Ziggy Stardust and then Aladdin Sane, Pinups, which a great album of all cover songs of, of early British rock. Um, and then Diamond Dogs and then Young Americans and then Station to Station. So it was it was six albums in about four or five years. And um, he is completely burnt out. He is hopelessly addicted to cocaine. He he's he's literally beginning to look like the alien that he's playing in Ziggy Stardust. Um He's dabbling in the occult and black magic. Yes. No, he was like he felt like he was held hostage by all these like witches, which were just regular women actresses who were just mm -hmm. living in his place at the time. And for him, him, that was his own like trilogy of him, like escaping from that. But really to like the rest of the world, it was like a weekend. But, <laughs> you know, David is really in his head. He was really in the occult so much that he was believing that Jimmy Page was a warlock who was trying to make him into a homunculus or something uh, a, 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 like kind of a creature that spouts out like a, they're kind of made of semen or something. And they're like, they're, <laughs> yeah, they're made of semen. And then they spout out a lot of magic or something. It, 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 there is so much to interpret. That's the best way I can figure it out. So David Bowie is way too much in his own mind. Yes. Yeah. He's, you know what? There's, there's a good point of reference. I was just telling Kahuna about this off air. Um, go on YouTube. It's worth watching the full, it's like 25 minutes. He does an interview on the Dick Cavett show. Uh, it's in between Diamond Dogs and Young Americans. It's it's when Young Americans is about to come out. And um, he is coked to the gills. Uh, somebody gave him a cane that he can't stop fidgeting with. He's twirling this cane. He's he's wiping his nose with the cane. He, he's drawing on the rug in it like he's just completely distracted and coked up. And it's literally like. Dick Cavett is interviewing an alien. <laughs> he's 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 going off about some theory about something called black noise, which uh, he said is um, it can it can crack it can crack an entire city. It's it's like if you hit a sound, you know, like if you hit a certain note or sound wave, it'll crack glass. He's, yeah. he's going on about something called black noise, where if you hit a certain note, it can it can tear a city in half. All right. Now, that's like a bioweapon thing that David Bowie is already trying to figure out how to destroy whole cities. <laughs> <laughs> and he's worried about the Earth population at this point, too. He's like, I've been trying to warn everybody this for years. Uh, <laughs> I, yes, you're right. He is totally convinced of these things. Or or maybe he's just going off on tangents, like all these like diatribes. And it's just because his brain is just moving at such a fast uh like rate that he doesn't even know what he's saying right isn't yeah. it like he he can't even remember or he couldn't even remember a lot of uh his history of his of his past his his he so uh station to station which uh comes out in 1976 which is uh, the last album he puts out before heading to berlin with iggy station the station is regarded widely as one of his 
best albums. It's it's the last time that this is when he's the thin white duke. Um he's incredibly thin even for him. He's he's like he looks like a wind would blow him away. Uh he's living on a diet of cocaine, milk and peppers. And and that's and that's it. There there's that you can also go to YouTube and watch an old uh Part of every kid's balanced, nutritious breakfast. Yes. <laughs> yeah. you, there's a, there's an interview with him called Cracked Actor, where you see him in the back of a limousine drinking milk, talking but talking about how there's a fly in the milk, and and that's what he feels like in America, and that that he's just this foreigner surrounded by by weird. Um, you know, he's just like a foreigner in, in strange surroundings. He's he's just full of milk like that fly was. That was it. Like his, his insides are exploding with all that milk. Um, yeah. And they're even saying like um, the mythology is it's never been confirmed, but he's 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 keeping his urine in the refrigerator. The, the refrigerator's filled with milk and jars of his own urine. Again, no idea if this is true or not, but it's it's. It's been it's been said many times and um, he, because, oh, he, he kept jars of his urine in the refrigerator because he didn't want witches to get them because if witches get your urine, they can cast spells on you, which I, I believe that for some reason, I will believe that I I'll you believe know anything. Let's let's. Uh, Let's give him the benefit of the doubt and say it's true. <laughs> we don't know that it's not right. You know, so there we go. Where was he peeing? Like, where was he paying that he was worried that witches were going to get at it? <laughs> I really want to know what he, he thought if a toilet wasn't safe enough, what would be yeah. then? Yeah. Like, <laughs> just like, oh, I got witches in the sewer. It's like probably a great Easter egg hunt like that you just go through <laughs> for the next few years in, in whatever abandoned mansions he left behind. Yeah. So so he is he's in very bad shape. There is um, there's a couple things that you can read if you're interested. Carolina, you told me you started reading the book Bowie in Berlin. Yeah. Yeah. I got about halfway through and it's really great. It's fantastic. It's yeah, it's a great book that details their time, uh, their time in Berlin. Um, there is also um, I told you, you got to watch this Dick Cavett the the Dick Cavett interview it's just completely bizarre Dick Cavett looks like he, he looks like he doesn't know what to what to do with him <laughs> um but i was saying oh back to your point that he he was he was so coked up during the making of um station the station that he claims to have no memory of recording it. He said he's, he, he was on record as saying that he had one memory of screaming into a microphone at some studio in Los Angeles, and that's it. And, and it's critically and commercially one of his biggest hits. Yeah, to, like no, on it's, both it's sides actually my favorite Bowie album, actually. Yeah, it's... Yeah. it's um, it might it might be mine. I go I go back and forth with Bowie all the time, but it Oh, it, what's your other one? I love I love Station the Station. I love um me. I don't know if you know James Mattern, but we have this conversation all the time. Like Scary Monsters is definitely up there. 
Oh yeah, I love Scary Monster. I love James Mattern. You gotta yeah. tell him I said hi. It's been yeah. a while. Yeah, I will. Now that guy knows his music too, man. Yeah, yeah we we've had him. We actually he came on for the um, we covered Iggy and the Stooges. So he we we took Iggy up to the point that that the Stooges broke up. Um, the other the other good thing to read, if you're able to, uh, Cameron Crowe, when he was like 17 and worked for Rolling Stone, did a cover story on David Bowie at this time when when he was in L.A. Yeah, it's and, like the almost famous part. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And it's just uh, I read it the other night and I thought it was going to be so interesting, um, especially because. They're doing it in 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 the hotel and uh Bowie finds out that Ron Wood from the Stones is in the hotel. So they end up conducting like impromptu the interview in Ron Wood's room. And and you got Ron Wood just chiming in. But even as I'm reading it, it's just Bowie going off on on coke addled diatribes about fascism and and, and <laughs> yeah. um, He's right. He he's lighting black candles and he's drawing. Uh, there's there's uh, pentagrams drawn uh, on the on the curtains uh, because he he claims that he's having trouble with his neighbors, but he never really. But also, it was like a hotel, so I don't know who who he <laughs> yeah, thought his no, neighbors were. He definitely had a helicopter following him for days. Like that's <laughs> where he was at that point. And and you know what? Especially that whole fascist fascism part that he thought he was like, oh, I'm trying to be a character by accidentally, be, you know, fell into it a little bit too much. The whole calling Hitler a uh, marvelous morale booster yes. uh, was definitely like a fucking foot in the mouth. But uh, uh, well, at least he walked that back real fast. Yes. Luckily. Yeah, 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 yeah. He, he yeah, he came like in a moment of clarity. He was like, I shouldn't have called Hitler the world's first rock star. <laughs> oh, God. Which which he and did. He, yes. And all he had to do was say, sorry, didn't mean it. And then moved on to like this next phase. And like, I'm too busy being creative here. Stop bothering me with the shit I said last week. Yes. It's nuts when you're David Bowie. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Um, you know what? Oh, you know what I found out that was real? I don't know if you caught it in the book. Um, just a complete side note on station, the station golden years was originally was originally written and pitched for Elvis Presley. Wow. That's nuts. I, I that I did not know. Yeah. And wh- what did Elvis Elvis say Elvis said? No, that? Elvis passed. But you can almost like when you hear the song, like now that I know that I'm like, oh, I can almost see that. I can almost hear that. And in, in Elvis's I can almost hear the song sung in his voice. Yeah. No, I can't. And, and an older Elvis, a mature Elvis, we can say. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's what Elvis was by by this period. Right. He was just matured. You know, <laughs> well, he, he was older. I don't know. <laughs> and there was just a lot more Elvis to love. That's, that's what there was. <laughs> there was a lot. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so um, Bowie is uh, as much as he's in the grips of all this paranoia and he, he's um, there's 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 something in him that realizes he he has to get out. Like he, there's something in him that, that he knows if he stays in LA, he's going to die. He'd gone off to New Mexico to film, uh, the man who fell to earth and he got clean in New Mexico and had clarity and 
started brainstorming that maybe Europe was the next spot for him. Uh, but then when shooting wrapped on the movie and he ends up back in L.A., he he falls on old habits and uh, it's not long before he's like in the throes of addiction again. Um, Iggy isn't faring. Iggy's actually faring much worse. You know, the, the Stooges had broken up. Iggy's become a, a joke around Hollywood. You know, there's... Uh, he, he, people are stepping over him in the gutter. He's he's canceling shows because he he can't show up, or if he does, if he does show up, he comes out and he's throwing up on stage and then stumbling off. And uh, his reputation is completely trashed. His career is, you know, flatlined. Uh, Bowie Bowie throws him a bone. It's in shambles. Yeah, he, yeah, Iggy's not it, it is as bad off as Iggy as Bowie was. Iggy, you know, because at least, at least Bowie had the money <laughs> to, to. Yes, and at least it was cocaine. It right. wasn't heroin, right? Which was which the thing that was what Iggy was into. Right. He was he became a heroin addict, and from then it's like so much harder to get up from. Uh, I I imagine. I don't know, but it just seemed like it was a strong addiction that he had to deal with for many years. And yeah, he, he was a total mess. He was just so um, kind of like, as you said, like a joke. And also he knew that what was right for him was to go and see Bowie. He knew that because, you know, Bowie had mixed um, the Stooges uh, third album, Raw right. Power. So they knew each other already. And, and he and Iggy knew that Bowie liked him and yes. Bowie admired him. But. Iggy like had a little bit too much pride. So eventually he was like, okay, fine. Like he had, to, he was like at his rock bottom, which is where he was a telemarketer for like three days. Like that was a real thing. He was living, he was living in a garage. I never heard that. Um, yeah. Check out open up and bleed by Paul Trinka is like the best Iggy pop book ever. And so, so Iggy's like a total mess. Uh, he's a joke. Right. And then uh, he's living at a friend's house on a mattress. And his friend is like, listen, the only thing I can give you right now is I have this company, you know, can you be a telemarketer? And he did it for like a few days. And then he was just like, I can't do this. I'm not imagine. I was like, hi, I'm Jim Osterberg. You know, it would have been really weird. And then he was like, and then he finally figured out, like, I need help when he was in some like three day motivational, like course of like success and reinvention. That was like $600 for a whole weekend, like one of those kind of places. Yeah. And he actually went to one of those because that's how desperate he was. Until his friend was like, just go call Iggy, uh, go, go call David Bowie, just go and see him. This is so, you know, this is what you need to do. And so eventually he swallowed his pride. And the minute like Iggy like walks into a door, David Bowie's like, hey, let's make you a solo album for real this time. Why don't you come on tour with me? And then that's when Iggy went, went like, OK, and it was, that's all he had to do. You know, all he had to do was just walk in through that door. And and it worked. It worked because it began this whole Berlin era, because honestly, without Iggy, I don't know if David would have been able to do exactly the way he wanted it to be done. No. You know? Yeah. Well, well, Bowie kind of uses Iggy to as as an experiment. I mean, it's it's definitely a symbiotic relationship. Yeah. Bowie, when Bowie first gets to America, he seeks Iggy out because the Stooges had this reputation in in England. And um, what Bowie is trying to be through his characters, like Iggy is like, Bo, you know, Bowie, Iggy's the real deal. 
And, yes. and, and <laughs> Bowie knew that by associating with him, it's going to give him, it's going to give him a lot of credibility in, in certain circles that, that he's looking for credibility in. Um, That's true. Yeah, because I mean, he's the American counterpart. He's like the animal. He 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 had he's the godfather of punk. Yeah. So you're right. So Bowie's like Bowie is smart enough to know who to latch on to, who to hang out with for whatever period of time and, and take their essence. Yes. But he does give back a million times back, too. So, oh, it, yeah, it is- he he I'm I'm he he bails Iggy out many times over the years. Yeah, like the time he got arrested for uh, this, uh, an old, old law where he got arrested for wearing a a dress, a woman's dress. But then Iggy was like, no, this is a man's dress uh, (laughs) and all that business. (laughs) David Bowie's bailing him out on that. Also, they get they get uh, they get arrested for a marijuana charge, which they had to bail him out on that, Mm -hmm. which is back in the fucking day when it was like 15 years behind bars for some pot, not even good pot. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, it's like, he, yeah, he got arrested with eight ounces. And then you were like, that was in the 70s, which means that was three ounces of sticks and seeds. <laughs> like I stems. would need a bonfire for it to work for me <laughs> if I were to go back in time. Because <laughs> that is not a, I, that is not a lot. I re, one thing I did learn from all my elders and the people before me is like the weed was not that good. It's just but it was right. what we had. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you had to you had to work with what you got back then. <laughs> That's why he had eight ounces. It was so he can get like three decent joints out of it. <laughs> Honestly, just get rid of all the sticks and, and seeds, and and then then you're left with half an ounce. What are you gonna do with that? And go to jail for fifteen years. Great idea. But he he bails them out not like but. Uh, like financially several times over the years, like like he keeps when when every time Iggy runs into some trouble, Bowie would record one of his songs and put it on an album. Yes, exactly. Like, oh, yeah, that's happened. Like he would just kind of help him out. Like you need a little bit of money because it looks like you can barely just rent an apartment. Yeah. And you're the godfather of punk. Yes. You should really be in a different place. Yeah, but Bowie. Yeah. Bowie. That's what he thought. He's like, I need Iggy, but I need Iggy to also be well. And because uh, that was the one thing that Bowie, it, it turns out it was actually coming from a good place, even though it was a useful place. So he told Iggy, all right, come to my station, the station tour in 1976 and come see how it's done and like spend some time, you know, just just relax. Don't you don't have to do anything. Just see how things go. And then we get together. And then by the end of it, we can record your solo album. Right. Which which happened finally right. in Europe. Yes. So they, um, yeah, he, that's a good point. He gives Iggy a taste of like, Hey, if you can look, I'm, I'm dabbling in the occult and, (laughs) and, and Nazism and I can keep it together enough to put on a world tour. Like if you can just keep it together a little bit, this is watch the show. Yeah. This is, this is what you can have. You can, you you can do what you love and have money in your pocket. Well, that's the thing. Iggy was smart enough to know when he had to behave. So he wasn't like completely out there. He, he would be when he felt like it, but he was also one of those guys who could totally go back to normal and just talk to you like on the level, even if he was in a psych ward and be like, Hey, how's it going? My name's Jim. Yeah, I know. I was a little crazy yesterday, but like he was smart <laughs> enough to know like that he has to be normal for a little while now. Yeah. Right. And, 
and then he buckled down for it. Yes. And it's a good thing he did. It was the best thing he's ever done for himself. Yeah, he did. I mean, again, they, they, 1977, four landmark albums. They, I mean, it's, it's insane. I, I don't even think I realized until I started rereading the book. I was like, that was all in 12 months. Um, so they, they head over, they head over to Europe. They make camp in Paris initially. They, they start recording what becomes the idiot in Paris. Um, they're not super thrilled with the studio in Paris. And then they move camp to Berlin, uh, where, where they're roommates. And um, they start work on The Idiot, which, for all intents and purposes, is a David Bowie album fronted yeah. fronted by Iggy Pop. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Because Bowie and, and his team, his band, they're making the music. And Iggy's the one who's scribbling on pieces of notepads and stuff. And he's coming up with the lyrics. But yeah, he's just sitting there while they're actually making it. They're making the whole music. Right. Or Iggy. Yes. He, he's in the studio watching, uh, watching Bowie's arranging the songs. Uh, Bowie gave him some songs that were already completed, you know, even even halfway lyrically. And then Iggy would just tweak the lyrics. And um, Iggy doesn't have much input on the album uh, other than writing the lyrics. And and by the way, he, he writes a lot of the lyrics on mic like yeah, he, he, yeah he improvises a lot which which is insane you know well, it's he did that with the stooges i mean yeah well but mostly that was because uh, if you remember from like the first album when they flew into new york to record and they said hey so you have more than four songs right and Iggy and the Stooges were like, oh, fuck. And so they <laughs> they spent all night in the hotel room, like writing everything they could. They like finishing up the album because they thought like, you know, Electra or some uh, the record company that they were signed to were just like, yeah, we're going to record like what? Eight songs, seven songs. And they're just like, we have four and a half. So they literally crammed all night. And then the songs are like real cool time. So it's like I want to have a real cool time with you. We will have a real cool time tonight so i mean the lyrics aren't exactly poetry it's not like bob dylan right but but so iggy learns how to work on the fly so by the time he gets to the idiot he's like that's all i know how to do is just work on the fly yeah and it's gonna be like in that moment and also they're in germany and they're experiencing like fun things like going out to bars and listening to music and checking out kraut rock and all that stuff all that crazy like can and tangerine dream and 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 craft work so like you can hear a lot of that. I think it was a lot of their like like just the atmosphere, the whole place. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, they they go out nightclubbing every night. So okay, that's that's a song. Yeah. You know, we're we're <laughs> nightclubbing, we're what's happening. You know, they're they're just Iggy's just literally it's almost like Bruce Springsteen in a way. Like Iggy's just telling you what he woke up and did that day. Mm-hmm. I love it. I'm here for it. I, I like how simple it is. Like, well, you know what? They made their lives simple in a way. Like they got away from all their friends and stuff and they just kept it like, what are we doing today? You're right. I went to the grocery store today or I'm just riding. I'm just riding in a car and that's all I'm doing. <laughs> and then yeah. the song. Yep. <laughs> and, 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 but the, the songs are, um, the music it's, it's unlike anything Bowie's done before by and by the way Bowie I don't think Bowie gets a lot of credit 
for how good a musician he was. You know, like everyone knows it was like this amazing voice and this incredible singer, but the dude played almost every instrument. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, uh, he plays he plays a good chunk of the instruments on The Idiot. Uh, guitar, drums, piano, synth, sax. Um, this is where you find the original version of China Girl. Oh, that's right. That's right. Because um, what was it? The story about uh, there was a woman who was a friend of the owner of the chateau and mm-hmm. she was like staying there and Iggy fell in love with her. It was his, it was the owner's girlfriend. It the was... only girlfriend. There was a girlfriend. And so she, and since it's like the 70s, it's all like, you know, everyone's all open about whatever they want right. to do. So they have an affair and he falls in love with this woman, even though they don't speak the same language, which. I thought it was kind of romantic, although calling her a China girl was a whole other thing. But who cares? It's a good song. <laughs> it's so it's 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 so funny, too, because I always like I'd read somewhere years ago that the song was actually about heroin. That's you what know? I thought, too. And that always made sense to me, even lyrically, you know, like when he when he's uh when he's singing about visions of swastikas in his in his mind and plans for everyone, I was like, "Oh yeah, he's so fucked up on heroin that that's the, that's the paranoia, you know? That's the that's what's making." But like, no, it was just literally about a Chinese girl. Yeah, it was a she was Vietnamese French. Oh, okay. I believe because she because I remember reading in the book that she uh, spoke French. And he obviously just spoke English. And so they could never get together. Uh, but even though they tried or something. But, yeah, I also thought it was about heroin, because if you look at the lyrics, it's all about like really wanting this one thing yes. that they really, really right. want to have. Yeah. And it's like, well, obviously, it's got to be heroin. I mean, if it's not Iggy Pop singing this, then I don't know what. Yeah. But apparently it was about a woman, supposedly. Right. And then it's funny because when you hear Bowie's version you're like, well, that's that's about a Chinese lady for sure. <laughs> <laughs> the exact same lyrics. It's just amazing what because because Iggy sounds menacing. Yeah. You know, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and David Bowie's a lot more suave, if you ask me. Like, right. If you're if you were to ask me, like between ha- like, who would I choose? Yeah, it would always be it would be Iggy Pop if, if it were like a one night thing. Right. But if it were like a two week fling, it's totally <laughs> David Bowie. For sure. For sure. What about you, Ken? Bo- uh, well, that's a good question. I feel like Bowie would be uh, more tender with me. I'm going I'm going <laughs> Bowie also. Good one. Good thinking. Um, very androgynous. So it works. <laughs> so what what Bowie's doing, you know, and he, he's singing back up on the album. But what he's doing with this album that he's producing for Iggy is he is laying the formula for what he wants to do with Lowe. Which, which he, you know, as soon as the idiot's finished, he goes to work on low. On his own album, yep. On his own Pretty album. Smart. Which is, um, he gets his old producer, Tony Visconti, comes in to work on it. Brian Eno is credited with producing it, but according to this book, Tony actually does a lot more of the work. What, yeah. What Brian Eno brings to it is, oh no, wait, that was, I'm getting ahead of myself. That was Heroes. But what Bowie starts doing is, um, he's got fragments of songs 
and um, he's listening to a lot of Brian Eno and a lot of craft work, and he's getting into ambient music where um, he's tired of telling stories in his songs. He's tired of coming up with characters. You even see a little bit of that in the Dick Cavett interview, even though he wasn't entirely done with the alter egos and the Dick Cavett interview. During the Diamond Dogs tour, which was this huge production, Bowie sort of in mid-tour decides that he wants to get rid of the band and bring in like um like a soul band and he he's very he's gotten into soul music and the tour goes from this big giant production to uh kind of a stripped down sound a different band you know like midway and and he says on Cavett that he he just wants to go about being David Bowie he's like I I just want people to pay attention to the songs you know I, I just want to go back to being a singer I don't yeah. feel like I don't feel like I need all this yeah he um, did have a lot of characters like it was like Ziggy Stardust the actor Howling Jack the the Thin White Duke uh the, there were just so many and then he was just getting so confused in his own brain and who he was and what he was doing so when he got to this point he was like Brian Eno I get it now or can or or craft work or whatever. Yeah. And, and he was like, let I, I, you know, it's kind of that thing is like, he's a pretty girl who's like, I want to show that I, I read books. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what he is. He is, can't, uh, he is like that, that what's that? Not can't hardly wait. What's the other one? She's all that. <laughs> David Bowie's all that. And that's why he's, you know, put on some overalls and some glasses and, um, a little paint on his nose and he's like, no, I got some su substance. You know, I'm, I'm not just a pretty face who's like gay all the time. No, I'm, I'm like a real dude who makes really amazing music. And that's what he, I think he had something to prove in yeah. that, in that sense. Yes. For sure. Yeah. And that, that's what I love about low. Cause it, it was a, it was a very intentional effort, but he pulled it off. I think. Yes. And, and it was so good. It's so, it's so good. It's so good. It is so dark and it is so um parts of it just sound very simple, even though they they probably weren't that simple to make, you know, they they probably weren't that simple to come up with. Um he he's he doesn't oversing anything. A, a lot of it is sung very gently or um most of the album is just song ideas. And, yeah. And like you were saying before, right? Like you were saying how he comes up with this process where he's making the ambient music. He's like where, where actually it's like a three step, right? Where he comes he comes in with ideas, right? Fragments, like you said. And then uh, with his like with his band, they kind of start putting on instruments on and they start layering it up. And then at the end, he puts in the vocals. And if like if like you can get some idea of like David Bowie's thoughts, like what he's going through is like like uh, do you, do you ever see that uh, that Ricky Gervais uh, 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 scene in extras where David Bowie is right next yes. to Ricky Gervais yeah. and he's just like chubby little fat yes. man. <laughs> he's yeah. like, no, not no pathetic little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's he's coming in with ideas, not with the words. No, no there's no there, there's no, no pathetic words, words on it. <laughs> but but he he does come in. He's like, just record that because he's all about like the like the, the moment, like the the brilliance of the moment. Like it, you can't capture you have to capture it on tape because you can't remember it. So it's there. It's fleeting. And then it's gone. So he's like very all about like being the, in the moment. The moment. Yeah, he um, 
the ry- the rhythm tracks. So the the bass and the drum player, they come in and lay their tracks and first take, Bowie's like, that's good. And they're like, <laughs> they literally, I mean, listen, low is now, you know, at the time, uh, I think people didn't know what to do with it, but it's now many people consider it to be his best album and it's widely regarded as a masterpiece. Um, but he was just... He was like, nope, first take is good. And and those rhythm tracks that they assumed were the demos and end up being on the song. I, I, I think I read that they didn't do more than two takes on, on any rhythm tracks. Um and wow. and like I said, they're well what I think is also really cool, I, lyrically it's super dark and it's recorded, you know, parts in Paris, parts in Berlin. And it's the Berlin, you know, it's the start of his Berlin trilogy, but it's an album about Los Angeles. It's it's an album about escaping the darkness that was L.A. There's references to the occult throughout it. Um, yeah, that there's warlocks chasing me. I had to put an ocean between us. Yeah, it was it was nuts. It, there was there. Yeah, there were instances of. Where, where you can kind of see like him talking about how bad L.A. was for him, which I totally agree with. I mean, L.A. is a nice place to stay for a week. But then, yeah, <laughs> I, I get it. Like it's, they like arms come out of the, the ground and they hold you down and stuff and you can't even scream. You're screaming silence. <laughs> right. Well, that's that's sort of what that's sort of I what love the Brooklyn is what I'm trying to say. I love Brooklyn. <laughs> that's sort of what the album's about. But it, it's it's about, you know, needing needing to escape Los Angeles. Um, but the music, it's very it's very European. Um, yeah. Can I tell you something? Yeah. I actually went and toured uh, the Hansa Studios uh, in Berlin, like in 2019, mm-hmm. in the summer of 2019. And we actually I, me and my husband, we actually did a whole like a like a sort of like a Bowie in Berlin kind of tour. And we got to see the whole thing and they showed us pictures of it and how like uh, with the, what was it called? Like the hall down the wall. Uh, the, no, it's a uh, by the wall studio, the mm-hmm. hands of by the wall studio where, where you look out the door, like out the window. And then you see like uh, where it used to be the Berlin wall. Right. And like these like Russian red guards, like right up there, like with snipers and stuff that could just take you out. If they wanted to, or take out David Bowie or Iggy pop. If they wanted to just from the window and shit like that. Like they were right next to like within the, just like a hundred feet or something from that. It's insane. It's yeah. a beautiful space. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. I would love and to it see And it survived that. the war. It was insane. Yeah. <laughs> it survived David Bowie and Iggy Pop. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also, um, I, w- I would love to do that. Um, uh, I'll take you next time I go yeah, to Germany. Yeah. You just <laughs> tell, your, like, tell your husband, remember the guy that I mentioned twice a year? Yeah, like he's, you think he's, he's funny too. So can we just like fly him all yeah. expenses paid for like a week? Yeah. <laughs> you laughed at one of his tweets in like 2015. <laughs> um, this is his first album that, to feature instrumentals and, and half the album, like the whole second side of the album is, is an instrumental suite. 
it starts with an instrumental, which Speed of Life sounds like it should be a song with vocals. And yeah. that's because it, it is. He just couldn't come <laughs> up with any. I like that he that's my favorite thing about David Bowie. Like, it's like, did you do your homework? No, because I couldn't come up with anything. Yeah. It's like I, I want to be like that. You know, yes. like, no, it's meant to be like this. It's meant to have now I've tried. I, I put in the work, but nothing came out. Yeah. So you know what you get? You get no vocals. Yeah. And we're, we're all we all have to take it. Yeah. All, all <laughs> the mo, all the songs fit. There's really. um uh there's really only one complete song. Uh, like, uh, I think Sound and Vision is the only song that, like, has a proper end, the beginning and end. Uh, the rest of it are just fragments, like um, Breaking Glass, you know, which which is about him dabbling in the occult. I still get, I get goosebumps every time I hear that song. Um, it, it just, it fades out after there's one chorus and two verses and it just fades out immediately after the second verse because he couldn't come up with anything else. So <laughs> instead of, you know, instead of filling it out with extra music for two more minutes, they were just like, fuck it, just hit the fade button. That's beautiful. And then next song. And then then they're done in like days. Yeah. That's how you work fast. You work fast by just not overthinking it. And I think that's what David Bowie was all about. Like just capturing the moment. Don't overthink it and keep moving on right. constantly. And, and, and it works. Now he does what I think is the coolest thing because he does no promotion for the album. He, he decides he is he is done. All, he's been doing nonstop press for the better part of a decade. Uh, constantly putting out new albums and having to tell people and explain to them what they are and what they mean. And he decides he's, he's not physically up for it. You know, the, the, the uh, drain of, of a media circus, he doesn't want to tour it and he just wants it to come out as a statement and let people judge it for what it is. People were so confused about what to do with it that um, NME, you know, the... the uh, oh, New Musical Express? Mm -hmm. They put out two different reviews for it. One where the guy said it was like the worst shit Bowie had ever done and he didn't understand it. And another that was like, this is light years ahead of what anyone else is doing right. They put out two reviews because they, they didn't know what to do with it. You know what? That I was that same person probably probably like 2003 to and then Carolina 2017. Yeah, I get it. Because because for me back then, I was like, no, I, I, I need something for my party mix yeah. for my, you know, whatever high school thing. I, I, I'm trying to put a playlist on my my phone or something. Um, so I, I understand. Yeah. So but when I finally like just like just sat down and just listened to it. Then I realized, oh, this is brilliant. Yes, this is this is insane. And I can see why David Bowie wouldn't want to tour with that anyways, because he was Ziggy Stardust. He was the Thin White Duke. He was like all these people. And now he's supposed to go on as himself and then like play songs without ever singing some of them. Yep. Like it's going to piss off a lot of people. Yes. And it just makes sense for it to speak for itself. Yes. Because if he were to try to sell it, then I don't think it would have worked as well. Yeah. And he was smart enough to like recognize that. 
Yes. I also think it's interesting that he he finally stops doing characters and decides, like, I'm just going to be David Bowie now. I'm just going to let people see this is what I'm into. I'm not this. This is nobody but me. And it's the weird it's the weirdest music of his career up to that point. You know, I love it. And thanks to Brian Eno, who's like waking up with like in a chateau or something. And he's just like, you know, there are ghosts that are haunting me right now. Cause that's what he was saying. Like he said, like uh, that, that his room was haunted yeah. and it kind of gave him that eerie feeling, which kind of helped a little bit. Cause it made the music like really fun and like kind of uh, just like, kind of like maybe what West Berlin was a little bit like, like kind of like pockmarked and like bombed out a little bit. Like it, the war was like decades before, but it took them a long time to rebuild. So you can like feel that it's kind of like, like just desolate, isolated, but still, but we're all still trying to party in front of like, in just like a bombed out room or something. Yeah. And, and Brian Eno being in there and just bringing that, like that whole vibe to it. That's David Bowie is smart enough to do that. Like, I just have to invite a bunch of people and they will just seep into the recordings. It just seeps in. Yes. It's weird. It's it, it, it's a stew. He he has the recipe. Yeah, he he um, he's smart. You, you, you would think that somebody like that would be so obsessive over their music and the arrangements. But he's bringing fragments of song ideas to the band and saying, work it out, play what you feel. And then they'll they come back to him with a few different arrangements and he picks the one that he likes. Yep. That's the David Bowie process. And that's the one he's going to go with, just like you said. And then and then he he, he will do that. I mean, he does it uh, for the next few, especially, con, you know, when he continues his Berlin years. Although I do think like what what happened when, uh, like you said, uh, David Bowie finishes low and then he goes on tour with Iggy Pop to promote the idiot because he's like, I'm not promoting low. I'm yeah. going to promote the idiot. He, and then by the end of that, Iggy and David are understandably a little bit annoyed with each other, but like still lovingly, they're just kind of tired of right. each other. Yeah. It's, it's like the odd couple at this point, they've, <laughs> yeah. they've been on top of each other for a long time. They are inside each other at all times. Yeah. And, and I mean, a meta yeah, metaphorically, yeah. <laughs> but, but yes, very much so. And, and so they're kind of like, ah, I, I kind of want to just go to the bookstore by myself. Yes. for once. Yeah. So Bowie doesn't tour low. He goes on tour with Iggy as his keyboard player. And that's it. He he doesn't. He, he's not front and center. He just sits behind. He's just one of the band, and they tour the idiot. And Bowie, in interviews, said that it was the most fun he'd ever had on a tour in his life, because none of the responsibility was on him. None of the stress was on him. And Iggy, I can imagine, is getting irritated because all the press is about him and Bowie. Uh, he's getting. There was one review of a of a show they did in Europe where the guy says, you know, even though he's sitting behind the keyboards, it's pretty clear Bowie's running the whole show. Oh, that would irk me. Yes, too. that would. And it was like, no, he's just playing the keyboards. Right. Yes, I could see. And also Iggy, remember, he, he was at the lows of his low. He's finally getting healthier. He's not doing heroin anymore. He's just like just a little bit of coke once in a while. Yeah. That's OK. Right. Uh, and so he is in a clearer mind. But but then when he's finally like doing good, all the praise he gets, like kind of goes and pivots like to David Bowie. Yes. And he's like, that's not fair. Yeah. Um, in Iggy's mind, it is so unfair. 
And I, I, I could totally understand that. I could I, get I, it. I totally get that. They, they said throughout the tour, like, People are like Bowie fans are showing up to his shows dressed like Ziggy Stardust or dressed like Aladdin Sane. And it, it'd be like 50 percent Bowie fans, 50 percent Iggy fans. Yeah. I mean, no one could like show up with like peanut butter on their bare chest. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to cosplay like that, Ken, then I, I don't know. We got to get some like creamy stuff. Oh, that's funny. Well, if you if you if you're gonna do it, I, do I, it. I will not be your peanut butter. Okay, you need to get someone else to do that. <laughs> but I want to watch. I want to see how this goes down. If we're gonna have a cosplay party, if we're gonna have a Berlin years party, yeah, you know, I could be the wall. Uh, we could have a couple Russian guards. It'll be really fun. I could be the ghost. <laughs> Um, so the tour, the tour finishes up, then they go to work on Iggy's next album. Bowie's not as involved. They still, they still co-write six, uh, I think six of the eight or nine songs. It's, it's lust for life. Um, which, uh, Iggy starts to assert more of his independence with this album. So Bowie's coming in and I, I'm not, you know, I'm not even 100% sure if Bowie produced the second one. I, I know that he mixed it. Right. Um, no, I I think that, uh, yeah, Bowie did a lot of the music for it, for mm -hmm. sure. And I do remember reading that he got uh, Carlos Alomar, who's usually Bowie's like arranger yeah. and stuff throughout and, you know, throughout all these decades um, to kind of come in and also be like the musical director for Lust for Life. Um, just kind of to kind of help out to keep their uh, relationship, their friendship, like in, right. in a good place. Kind of be like, well, whatever Carlos says, and that kind of keeps David Bowie at a uh, buddy level, right? In so, some right. Respect. Oh, they they bring in um, Hunt and Tony Sales. Oh yeah, the crazy as, guitar as the brothers. rhythm as the rhythm section, uh, who are comedian Soupy Sales's kids. Yeah, and uh, also. Um, you know, fast forward uh, 10 years or 10 or 11 years and they form the rhythm section for Tin Machine when when Bowie joins, when Bowie decides he's had enough of being a solo artist and he just wants to be in a band. So uh, Hunt and Tony's sales are the rhythm section for Lust for Life. The song Lust for Life is written uh, on the ukulele. Like Bowie, <laughs> Bowie started messing around with a ukulele and came up with Lust for Life. And um, in typical Iggy fashion, like as amazing as that song is, it's not until the 90s when it's used for train spotting that people recognize. That that was my entry. That was my entry yeah. to Iggy Pop, the Stooges, uh, Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground. And, and I was 15, 16 years old. So, you know what? It's a good thing that they did that. Yes. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Otherwise, I wouldn't. I mean, I would have eventually found out, but it was a good thing in 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 my like timeline uh, that it would that it worked out when it did. Right. So, and that movie's great, by the way. Yes, yeah, for sure. There's, <laughs> Don't um, do heroin. That's the only rule. <laughs> There's one rule in life. <laughs> you can kill people if you want. Just don't do heroin. <laughs> There's like cracks in the foundation of their friendships are starting to form. I don't think it ever gets to like, you know, where they can't stand each other. But, you know, Bowie will be in the studio making suggestions and do it this way and arrange it. And then as soon as Bowie leaves, 
Iggy re-records everything, and and he's he's and he's pushing back in interviews. People start asking about Bowie, and he he refuses to answer. He'll walk out of the interview. But Bowie isn't as consumed with this album because he now, as soon as this album's out, he's he's already at work on Heroes, which yeah. um, this is where Brian Eno comes in. This is also the only album of the Berlin trilogy that is uh, completely done beginning to finish in Berlin. Um, yep. It's great. And I love it. The way it's done is is nuts because Brian Eno had I have to look it up. He had, he had this system. He had these it was a hundred different cards that um he had written up and each card had a musical instruction on it. Um I have to just see what they're called. They're called oblique strategies. Brian Eno's oblique strategies. And they would be in musical instructions uh, geared to change things up. So if if you're if you're stuck in your head about the way a song's supposed to sound or supposed to be, and and you can't get the sound that you're looking for, it's just a way of trying some. So it'll be like you pick a card randomly, and it would say something like, "Have the bass player." play the keyboard and have the keyboard player play the drum. It would like, you know, you're having people switch instruments and play things they're not familiar with or it's sexy dice. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right exactly. Do <laughs> lick nipples, lick <laughs> arm. I get it. I mean, <laughs> it's weird that it's, it's very twilight. So it's like, we got this gigantic computer that takes up a whole building and all it dispels out is little tiny cards to yeah. say like one sentence. Yes. Th that's what Brian Eno made. Right. <laughs> but it's, it's, it, yeah, that's, oh, that's hilarious, <laughs> but it's how heroes ends up being recorded and they, they bring in Robert Fripp, uh, also, you know, Brian Eno's collaborator and he's, he's this virtuoso, virtuoso guitar player and he records the, the guitar solo for Heroes, which is this just beautiful, iconic guitar solo. That's the first part that's recorded on Heroes. He hasn't heard anything. <laughs> they, they, build this, they start building a song around a guitar solo. Robert Fripp had no idea what he was playing. He, 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 he showed up at the studio, took his guitar out of the case, plugged it into Brian Eno's suitcase synthesizer, and said, what should I play? And Bowie said, just play something that you would never play on one of your albums. And he was like, okay. And he he fiddles around and in one or two takes, they get the guitar, the guitar solo for Heroes. It's fucking Avengers. That's what we're looking at. You know, we're looking at Tony Stark and Captain America. And then they bring on Thor. For God's sakes, Robert Fripp. Like, that's what we're seeing. We're just, it, this is a super group. In a lot of ways. Yeah. And this is all David Bowie's doing. He, he, he's the one who had this party started. And that's what the, I, I love heroes. Like I low, I mean, low is like my I, it might be my favorite from the Berlin era era. But uh, but heroes, it it's like too good for what it should be. Yeah, this is what I should say. Like, it's just like, God damn it. He did it again. Yes. It's also got. um it's also these are fully formed songs. You know that these are you're not fading out after ninety seconds. He he's got he's got full songs 
done, but but the song, it's like, you know, I'll be honest, once you get to the instrumentals, I I couldn't, you know, I'll, I, I can, I'll listen to a few. I don't always listen to it beginning to end. Yeah, you go back to the beginning of Low, maybe? <laughs> but Let's start um, this Berlin area again, this whole thing. Yeah, but the actual, you know, the, the vocal track, the vocal songs on Heroes are are some of the best like weirdest music he's made the lyrics are very stream of consciousness or something yeah, they're, they're the lyrics kind of remind me of the first time i ever got hot yeah that kind of thing when i when i had like an hour-long conversation with myself in the mirror it's very much <laughs> like that it's very cold in here it's dark all of a sudden what are you doing right now yeah it's it's, it's just a lot of stream of consciousness you could tell that he's taking a lot of uh what he learned from iggy Mm -hmm. Which is like Iggy doing a lot of because, you know, he's like a white blues man without doing blues. Like he's right. scatting. He, he's coming up with really interesting lyrics, like real cool time. But but he is he is coming up with something that is very brilliant. And so David Bowie's kind of like in search of that. So he kind of takes that, too. He's like, all right, I'm going to try to do that on mic as well, or at least try to write it a little bit beforehand. And so history of consciousness, uh, like I can see where he's going with it. But I can all I could just see all the layers of him being like, I should just write this like it's cold in here. It's dark over there. It's like it, there's just so many ways that he uh, described things that I guess it, it, I guess it set the scene. It set the mood. So it did work. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's he, he's he's capturing the tension of the Cold War era. Yeah. Uh, you know, recording it's a historical re document. Re now. Right. Right. Recording literally a couple hundred yards from the Berlin Wall. Um. He's he's also but the the lyrics are done in a cut and paste style. If you watch Cracked Actor on YouTube, you you can see him actually. It's like it's like a school project. He's just he has fragments of lyrics and he'll write them out and then he he cuts them up with scissors and he like throws them into a hat and then will pull out however many and then there that's the song and he he's got and those are the lyrics he's gonna sing. It's and, like a John and, Cage, like, let me throw eggs in a bathtub. Yeah. And then the way it sounds is like so different from it would have with any other eggs in any other bathtub in history. And the only way that actually like people can actually pull that off is that when we pay attention yeah, and, and we stop everything that we're doing to just watch eggs in the bathtub and like a million people do it and it goes wrong. And David Bowie does it once and it goes well. And so he's like, he tries it four more times. And and I I enjoy that <laughs> I'm here for that yeah yeah it really it, it's uh, it's crazy to think that like heroes now you listen to that song and it's considered one of the best that he'd ever done and everybody knows it and it's been covered ad nauseum it wasn't even a hit when it came out like oh, it did right. it did okay and and they were also like they were like oh you can never have a 6 minute single and they just cut the song in half which used to drive me nuts when you'd hear it on the radio and it would start at the halfway point Oh really? Yes, they're Oh, the, and what do they do? Do they go to commercial and finish it or No, 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 no. They 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 did a 3 minute single edit. Oh. That that whole first verse 
I think now they play now you yeah. hear the full song on the radio, but when it when it was released as a single, they literally just cut it in half. They started it at the second verse. Oh, that sucks. I hate it when radio stations do that. Didn't they learn anything from what was it? You lost that loving feeling or something? Well, Phil yeah. Spector is like, make it like a it's five, six minute song or whatever, or eight minutes. And they're like, they'll fucking play it. And he was right. Like, I, I don't. This is like a, over a decade later, two decades later, yeah. and they're cutting songs in half. Oh God! You know, I've, you know what? You know what Phil Spector did to cheat that? <laughs> what did he do? He just he just wrote a different time on the, oh, right. on the single. You, so yeah, you, if it was like a no seven minute, your work. right? If it was like a if that song was seven minutes long, he just wrote like three fifteen. Uh, and and shipped it and people played it. That's what we have to do. That's what we all have to do. Just just smudge like just just change everything. Just like I used to do with my ID. That works. That, works, <laughs> that used to work really well. <laughs> I promise it did. <laughs> so here heroes comes out. But this time Bowie's like, all right, I got to. You know, he he's feeling he I think he was feeling healthy again. He he, he knew that. uh he knew that he had to tour it and promote it. Yeah. And he was already feeling, like you said, like healthy and already just kind of ready to uh, disentangle himself from Iggy because they they had latched on into their most important, their most vulnerable times. And now it's like we already took a lot from each other and we helped each other a lot. Like it, it was the strangest like thing that they put to that. They both kind of decided to agree on and then they slowly just kind of drifted apart it's, it's a beautiful it's a beautiful story actually of like friendship and then being like and i'll always love that person yeah but you know i'm gonna well, be happy for them with their next collaboration yeah but you like it's you have friends like you have friends that you don't see for 15 or 20 years and and then you see them and it's like oh yeah and, and you pick up where you left off yeah and then you don't see them for a long time again but it's still they they um they got together in the mid '80s again. Uh, Bowie produced Iggy's "Blah Blah Blah" album, which, um, despite its '80s production, I think was a, a pretty underrated solo effort for Iggy. I, I think it was much better than it had any right to be. Yeah. Um, but but I, I don't put that on as much as I do uh, with the idiot, though. That's no. the, that's the one I put on way too many times. It, it's the idiot is so good. The idiot, like you can, I, so I've been listening for the last couple of days. Cause I knew we were doing this. I've just been going through and listening to all five records. And I'm like, Oh, the idiot might be the best of all of these as much, as much as I love. And it really is. It's a Bowie album with, with Iggy singing, but the idiot might be the best of all of them. I agree. You know why? Because it's first impression. That's my feeling of it. I feel like it's first impression. It's them first working. I mean, yes, they're not healthy because they're coming out of like all these drugs and they're trying to clean up and gain some weight. But it is the first time like they're they're doing something. And, and, I mean, actually, it's not the first time because they did have a fail attempt in the past right, and right. Bowie mixing his other album. But it's the first time they're actually making it work and take like delivering the baby. Yeah. And I think that's why it's the best one, because it feels like such a 20. Like, I don't know. There were 28, 29 at the time. And it's just like they were roommates for 18 months. 
And um, this came out of it. This is one of their babies. And I I don't know. It is the best. It's the one I show people who don't know anything about Iggy or uh, or David or not much of David Bowie. Yeah, that's that's the that's the entry. Like, that's how you get in. Yeah. Yeah. It's. um yeah, it's it's not it's still super experimental, but it it's not you know what? It's like I think it just goes back to instrumentals. Like um I don't think I care about ambient music. <laughs> it finally comes out. It took an hour. <laughs> Tell me, Ken, how do you feel about Brian Eno? <sighs> I I don't I, I think he's probably a great producer, you know, he is. And I agree with you. I, I, I like Brian Eno stuff when I have to deliberately listen to it. I really enjoy it. I, I you, you know, when you do a tasting, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to order that. Right. For my meal. Right. Yeah. So. It's like when you eat something, you're like, oh, that was interesting. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, interesting means you're never going to order it. Yeah. No, no, but I would like to taste it. Yeah. <laughs> but, which is what I did for the show. I, I listened to Another Green World by Brian Eno. I goes, started listening to that last night, too, because they're talking oh, about we it so much in the moon. book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Out the window, I hope. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes, I I did, too, because I've I've said this in the past on my on my music podcast. Um, I've said this in the past, like, why don't we get some like like CCR because that for me is like home cook it, yeah. you know, like get me some like fog hat, some Bob Dylan, whatever you want. I, I enjoy, I really admire Brian Eno a lot. I respect him. I, I'd go crazy if I were to meet him, but yeah, I, I just don't order him. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but that's fine. I think he'd understand that more than anybody. Right. I mean, look, we are like, we're comics. We're, we're not for everybody. You, you know, yeah, them. exactly. Know that. Um, I thought it was funny that, well, maybe not funny, but so Bowie agrees to do some television promotion for Heroes. He goes on his old friend Mark Boland's show, and um, Mark is dies before it even airs. He, he dies in a car crash, a week shy of his 30th birthday. And then, this is maybe of everything weird that came out of the Berlin period, this is the weirdest Bowie goes to Bing Crosby's to to record that Christmas special. Um, oh yeah! And Bing Crosby dies before it airs. <laughs> Bing, I forgot about that. Yeah, and you can tell Bowie's still, you know, he thinks he's a warlock now. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, he's, my semen is spewing on everyone, even though it's staying in my right. pants at all times, right. it's in my balls. Yeah. At all times. But now I'm a homunculus, hum- hum- homunculus or whatever you call it. And this is happening. Um, you, you think, I did see that. You think he found out Ben Crosby died and then was like, should have kept his urine in the fridge. That's what happened. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I did see that uh, Bing Crosby thing that they did uh, where it just it really looked like a kind of like a father being like, oh, so you're dating my daughter now. Well, come over here. Let's have a chat by the piano. It definitely felt a little bit in that sense of like the. Yeah, well, you can tell that they really didn't know who the other one was. It was like um, they say in the book, Bing Crosby's kids were huge fans of Bowie. So they asked him and then Bing Crosby, uh, Bowie agrees to do it because his mom was a huge fan of Bing Crosby. (laughs) That is adorable. And then he killed Bing Crosby. And then he killed Bing Crosby. (laughs) 
And then he's like, I got to move out of Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do this anymore. I got to go back to Switzerland. Yeah. It's awful. Yeah. By by then, you know, and then um, Lodger follows in 1979, um, which, which is, is good, but yeah. not as memorable, I guess. Not as memorable, but it, there's a few songs on there where you can tell. It's like there's almost one one or two songs on every Bowie album that almost lets you know where his head is for the next album. You know, so like yeah. if you listen to um, DJ, which sounds like a every time I hear it, I, I think it's the talking heads. Um, yes, it sound he sounds like David Byrne on it. But you listen to DJ and you're like and then Scary Monsters comes out the following year. And and you're like, oh, his head was at a return to rock. It could also be a little bit of Eno, who, who is working with Talking Heads. Mm-hmm. Like they're all getting the same chlamydia. You know, they're all <laughs> they're they're all exposing each other in a good way. In a good way. <laughs> good thing, <laughs> I should have used another analogy. No, the, it's the good the good chlamydia. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's hard to imagine that. Um, you know, after this landmark year, so 1977, these four albums and, and after the experimentation, if you if you read that Cameron Crowe Rolling Stone interview, which is, uh, you know, right somewhere in between Young Americans and Station to Station, Bowie says, I think I'm heading in a direction where I can't worry about album sales. I think I'm going to start selling let fewer and fewer albums uh, because I don't care about rock anymore. And, and I've got all these other ideas. Um, so it's hard. To, it's hard to imagine that just six years removed from that, from 87, from 77 in six years, He's going to put out Let's Dance and be one of the biggest pop stars. Yeah. On the it planet. A pop yeah. Hit it's, a it's, MTV darling. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. But we'll, we'll have, listen, we'll have you back on to, to cover uh, another era of David Bowie or if there's someone Absolutely. else. Absolutely. I could tell you about the 2005 point where I ran into David Bowie once. Oh, yeah. Tell me. Um, it's actually not, and luckily it's a 10 second story. Okay. I ran into him, like he was at, he, him and a mom, Iman, I mean, and his, uh, and his daughter were about to hail a cab cause it just started raining. It was like Lower East Side. Uh, I was on my way to a brunch. I was with a friend who drove me there and he goes, that's David Bowie as we're crossing the street. And I'm like, immediately, like I couldn't hear him cause he was like trying to like whisper it. So I said, where? And then David Bowie stared at me <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, Oh, I'm sorry. And then I ran away. So luckily, um, <laughs> oh, God, you know, if I would have known what would have happened 10 years later, I would have probably, uh, you know, made a more of an impression than running away through a crosswalk on 10th street. <laughs> I, sh- I should have hailed them a cab and shit. You know, I should have like materialized a hat and just driven them there like David Johansson or some shit. But I didn't do that. And I really regret it to this day. It was raining. You, David Bowie's hair was in peril at that moment. You should have locked eyes and told him you're a witch. <laughs> I've been like, I've been waiting for you since 1975. <laughs> remember, remember that time you pulled over to pee on the side of the road? <laughs> well, I got it. Yeah, I came from your semen as well. <laughs> Do you know that um, I saw 
Me and my wife went to see Ricky Gervais years ago in New York and Bowie opened the show. Holy crap. Like the place went fucking nuts, you know, because you don't think there's going to be an opener. And it it was um, it was like the theater at Madison Square Garden. It wasn't it wasn't the garden. It was, you know, maybe a two or three thousand seater. And uh, Bowie walks out, sits down at the piano, plays the fat man song from (laughs) extras, rips on Ricky Gervais for a minute or two and then brings him out. And it was uh, it was the closest I'd ever been to him, but it was also the coolest opener I'd ever seen at a comedy show. That's amazing. Yeah. No, he's also a brilliant comedian. Fuck you, David Bowie. Yeah. Why are you so good at everything? <laughs> and he's taking our jobs. Yeah. Exactly. Better him than Madonna. <laughs> Better him than us. <laughs> Carolina, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. I, I, I I'm so glad to see you again, especially yeah. after all the crap, the, the, the lockdown and stuff. So I'm glad I finally get to see your face. So tell tell people uh, where to find you. Tell them about your podcast. That I, I definitely want to check. I just watched that Velvet Underground doc, and now I now I want to hear your uh, your take oh, cool. on it. Yeah, yeah, it's me and my husband uh, Marcus Parks. The two of us we do a show called No Dogs in Space. We did a whole season on punk music, and then we did six episodes on the Beastie Boys as well as the birth and beginning of hip hop in New York City, which is really great. I learned a lot of uh, about everything on on that, and I also grew. I grew and evolved. It was great, really great. And then um, and then we're starting season two, which is alternative. We're starting with the Velvet Underground and then we're going to move on to the Modern Lovers, Patti Smith, Sonic Youth, uh, Nick Cave, Nirvana. We're going to have a really fun time. So uh, that sounds awesome. Yeah, it's going to be really yeah, it'll be great. I mean, the episodes will go out slowly. They will come out when they come out. But but in the meantime, you know, we got all those other uh, the backlog of yeah. shows. And also, don't forget to check out Ken Krantz's I Love Rock and Roll because you're listening yeah. to it right now. It's so great. Yeah. Check us out while you're at it. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to plug you back. I appreciate it. Where where can people find you on social media? Oh, right. Uh, at uh, Carolina Hidalgo. Oh, no. Carolina Danger Hidalgo on Instagram. I, I'm sometimes on Twitter, but Instagram is better. Carolina Danger Hidalgo. Do it. Or uh, comments, whatever you, whatever you want to write. Anything. <laughs> I don't care. I don't look at it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Carolina. Well, hope you had fun. Would love to have you back. Absolutely. Thank you, Ken. All right. We'll see everybody next week. Thank you. 